1: we have a terrific show for you today, including special guest Mark Shulman. He's the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. We'll be talking about current global events. Uh, ambassador Francis Rudy, our former congressman, also ambassador to the Royal Sea, or uh, Holy See, uh, will be joining us. We'll be talking about the war in Ukraine. And Jim McTagg, former Barons Washington Bureau Chief, will be joining us as well. It is August the 1st, and on this day in 1914, four days after Austria-Hungary declared war on Serbia, Germany and Russia declared war on each other, France ordered a general mobilization, and the first German army units crossed into Luxembourg in preparation for the German invasion of France. During the next three days, Russia, France, Belgium, and Great Britain all lined up against Austria-Hungary and Germany, and the German army invaded Belgium. The Great War that ensued was one of the most unprecedented destruction and loss of life, resulting in the deaths of some 20 million soldiers and civilians. Isn't that unbelievable? 20 million. On June 28, 1914, an event that is widely regarded as sparking the outbreak of World War I, Archduke Franz Ferdinand, heir to the um, Austro-Hungarian Empire, was shot to death with his wife by a Bosnian Serb. His name was Princep in Sarajevo, Bosnia. Ferdinand had been inspecting his uncle's imperial armed forces in Bosnia and Herzegovina, Uh, Despite the threat of Serbian nationalists who wanted those Austro-Hungarian possessions to join the newly independent Serbia, Austria-Hungary blamed the Serbian government for its attack and hoped that the incident, as well as justification for settling the problem of Slavic nationalism once and for all, however, as Russia supported Serbia and Austria-Hungary declaration of war was delayed until its leaders received assurances from German leader Kaiser Wilhelm II, that Germany would support their cause in the event of a Russian intervention, and Austria-Hungary declared war on Serbia, and the tenuous peace between Europe and their great powers there collapsed totally. On July the 29th, Austria-Hungary forces began to shell the Serbian capital of Belgrade, and Russia, Serbia's uh, ally, uh, ordered (coughs) a troop mobilization against Austria-Hungary, France, allied with Russia, began to mobilize on August the 1st. France and Germany declared war against each other on August the 3rd. After crossing through neutral Luxembourg, the uh, German army invaded Belgium on the night of August 3rd and 4th, and prompting Great Britain, Belgium's ally, to declare war uh, against Germany. For the most part, the people of Europe greeted the outbreak of war with jubilation. Most patriotically assumed that their country would be victorious within months. Of the initial belligerents, Germany was the most prepared for the outbreak of hostilities, and its uh, military leaders had deformatted a sophisticated military strategy known as Schlieffen, uh, the Schlieffen Plan, which envisioned the con- uh, conquest of France through a great arcing uh, offensive through Belgium and into uh, northern France. Russia, slow to mobilize, was to uh, be kept out op- uh, occupied by austro-hungarian forces while germany attacked france the Schlieffen plan was nearly successful but in early september the french rallied and halted the german advance as the bloody battle of marne near paris by the end of 1914 well over a million soldiers of various nationalities had been killed on the battlefields of europe and neither of the allies nor the central powers were the final victory was it, were in sight On the Western Front, the battle line that stretched uh, across northern France and Belgium, the combatants settled down into trenches for the terrible war of attrition. In 1915, the Allies attempted to break the stalemate with an amphibious attack of Turkey, which was joined by the Central Powers in October uh, 1914, but after heavy bloodshed, the armies, the Allies were uh, forced to retreat into in early 1916. The year 1916 saw great offensives by Germany and Britain along the Western Front, but neither side accomplished a decisive victory. In East, in the East, Germany was more successful, and the disorganized Russian army suffered terrible losses, spurring the outbreak of the Russian Revolution in 1917. By the end of 1917, the Bolsheviks had seized power in Russia and immediately set forth negotiating peace with Germany. In 1918, the infusion of the American troops and resources into Western Front finally tipped the scale in the Allies' favor. Bereft of manpower and supplies, and faced with an imminent invasion, Germany signed an armistice agreement with the Allies in November 1918. World War I was known as the War to End All Wars because of the great slaughter and destruction it caused, Unfortunately, the peace treaty that officially ended the conflict, the Treaty of Versailles of 1919, forced punitive terms on Germany that destabilized Europe and laid the groundwork for World War II. Again, Woodrow Wilson and his effete intellectual uh, knowledge uh, led that whole effort and um, created a terrible peace, although it was supposed to be the war to end all wars. By the way, if you want to see a great movie on World War I, I highly recommend the re- Remade, it's uh, uh, All all Quiet on the Western Front, a terrific, terrific uh, film. Kind of gives you a flavor of what really happened in World War One. Well, Bill Russell, who won 11 National Basketball Association championships during his Hall of Fame career spent with the Boston Celtics, died on Sunday. He was 88. He, his death was confirmed in a statement posted Uh uh, that said, the 12-time NBA All-Star passed away with his wife by his side. Considered the greatest greatest defensive center in basketball history, Russell turned the Celtics into a powerhouse that won eight consecutive titles from 59 to 66. He was also an outspoken civil and human rights advocate. Uh, may the great Bill Russell. Number six, uh, rest in peace. He literally could will a victory. He, he was an amazing, amazing man. Bill Russell passed yesterday. Well, Florida uh, Surgeon General Joseph Lopato said that COVID-19 vaccines do not stop the transmission of the disease, arguing against the vaccine mandates. How can you force people to take a vaccine in order to stop transmission? When the vaccine is not effective at stopping transmission, <laughs> the Harvard graduate said, you don't have to go to uh, medical school to know that doesn't make any sense at all. On the comments, First Lady Casey DeSantis said she believes that Lapado is the greatest surgeon general in the country. There's no question in my mind. When he speaks, I definitely believe what he has to say. When the CDC uh, lets out any kind of statements, I have real questions about it. President Joe Biden claimed early in the pandemic that vaccinated Americans will not com- become infected with COVID-19. The Sanders administration urges U.S. to drop health vaccine mandates against Biden's uh, get, uh, COVID. You, you're okay? You're going to be just fine if, uh, if you get COVID if the, with these vaccinations, Biden claimed. By the way, Biden, of course, had a relapse of COVID, I think second time in two weeks, a relapse of COVID on Saturday. Today, experts uh, widely agree that the vaccines do not prevent transmission of COVID-19, including Dr. Anthony Fauci. It's clear that the vaccinated and infected with COVID-19 are capable of transmitting the infection to uninfected individuals, Fauci said uh, last year. Vaccinated people who do have a breakthrough infection are clearly capable of transmitting the infection to the uninfected person, he said. In March, the Florida Department of Health issued a new guidance on the vaccine, saying the risks of uh, healthy children may outweigh the benefits. Based on current available data, healthy children aged 5 to 17 may not benefit from receiving the current available COVID-19 vaccine, they said. The department lists multiple factors that may cause risks to outweigh the benefits of the vaccine, including that already low risk of severe illness, high prevalence of Immunity in children, absence of data supporting vaccination benefits on children with immunity, higher than anticipated adverse events, for example, uh, heart inflammation and so forth. So, you know, it's all risk and reward. And basically, uh, when it comes to kids, uh, the the uh, risks are far greater than the rewards, according to Dr. Lapato, And I agree with that although I'm not a medical physician at all. It uh, notes that children will, with underlying health conditions or comorbidity should be considered uh, with their doctor. In general, healthy children with no significant underlying health conditions under 16 years of age have little or no risk of severe illness complications with COVID-19. Uh, Lapado, by the way, was appointed by Governor DeSantis in September 2021. Uh, he was uh, being really ostracized by the university, University of Cal, UCLA, uh, for his stance about COVID. He said, let's consider the facts. Anyhow, that created the opportunity. He was an endowed professor there. He created the opportunity for Ron DeSantis to recruit him to Florida, which was a great hire. Lopano will bring great leadership to the Department of Health. Well, U.S. Representative Byron Donalds, this is really great, what I think he's done here, is introduced legislation that aims to prevent the Biden administration from abusing the Defense Production Act to advance environmental agenda that does not have the support to pass Congress. Donalds introduced the Defense Production Oversight Act, along with U.S. Senators Roger Marshall of Kansas, For 72 years, the Defense Production Act stood as the worst-case scenario option in the event of a national emergency or international conflict to fully mobilize the weight of America's private and public sectors amid monumental junctures in time, Donald said. Since its inception, only six presidents enacted the DPA. Today, under Biden's administration, it's been enacted four times already in a year and a half. This egregious abuse of dpa depended." and threatens our government system, which places clear checks on each branch of government. The DPA is in a way to circumvent legislative branch when the executive branch fails to gain traction on its agenda, and this bill aims to curtail its use for for its intended purpose. The Defense Production Act allows the President to direct private companies to prioritize orders from the federal government. The proposed bill would empower Congress to express its disapproval of an administration's use of the Defense Production Act. A resolution expressing congressional disapproval would need to be passed both the House and the Senate. Uh, Congress has given extraordinary emergency powers to the executive branch under the assumption that they would only be using it in extraordinary circumstances. President Biden has decided to abuse that authority to give the impression he's acting on a crisis his administration continues to create and to push a climate agenda that cannot succeed legislatively. Congress must rein in this executive who's overstepping his authority, Marshall said. The Defense Production Act, now John Barrasso, made a comment, John Barrasso, the senator, uh, and uh, John Thune joined in the statement, the Defense Production Act is a critical tool to address uh, emergency supply deficiencies related to our national defense. It shouldn't be used to push pri- political priorities that Congress hasn't approved and doesn't, uh, won't directly impact our ability to defend our nation. Our bill allows Congress to stop any president from abusing executive authority, Barroso said. Good for him. Good for him. So it's uh, thank you, uh, Byron Donaldson. He's our congressman for uh, uh, initiating this bill, which I think is really important because that's exactly what this president is attempting to do. He doesn't have any uh, sway with Congress. He's not convincing anybody about uh, he certainly has the left, the far left, but uh, he doesn't have the influence to get his bills passed. So he's trying to use executive authority, and that's just wrong. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. The website is johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. Coming up, Mark Schulman, the founder and publisher of historycentral.com. That and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. at and stop by Lulubees Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m. seven days a week. Lulubees Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulubies Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. Forty-five,
0: forty-one. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden.
1: Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Choice Social. It's a new, refreshing social networking platform, and you can find out more and download the app by visiting the website ChoiceSocial.us. Coming up, I'm going to visit with the Ambassador Francis Rooney, former Ambassador to the Holy See. Right now, we have with us Mark Schulman. He is the founder and publisher of a terrific multimedia website. It's called HistoryCentral.com. Great for kids of all ages, including you and I. Again, Mark Schulman. Mark, thank you so much for joining us.
3: Always a pleasure, Bob.
1: Thank you, Mark. So let's talk, uh, start off by talking about China and Taiwan. Uh, the question is, is Nancy Pelosi going to make a visit? She's already scheduled four locations that she's going to visit on her trip. And her, uh, but uh, is she going to visit Taiwan?
3: I think she is at this point. That's what the rumors are today. I mean, she's been a China hawk going way back when. There, I hadn't, I hadn't realized this. There are photos of her and Tim in Tiananmen Square protesting in 1991 when she was a relatively young congresswoman.
1: Really? So
3: she's been strongly, um, I would say anti-China, but, but strongly uh, calling out China for the things that it's done over the years. And I don't think it's bad either. I don't think that we should be intimidated or allow ourselves to be intimidated because the Chinese are uh, threatening if uh, the Speaker of the House makes a visit to, to Taiwan.
1: Well, let see, the uh, Chinese president said he had a two-hour and 15-minute phone call apparently with the president this past week. He said, those who play with fire will perish by it. He's hoped that the U.S. will be clear-eyed about this. That's, those pretty strong words.
3: Yeah, strong words, but they're more, more bluff than anything else. Look, a couple of things that someone pointed out to me this week that I hadn't really thought about, that the chances of China going to war are so, so slim. Uh, two things, like I said, that I had not thought about. Number one, um, the reality is China uh, can't afford to go to war because it's not independent in terms of food. Mm. It has, it it literally can be cut off from food, and the only thing that's keeping food coming to China is America's blue-water navy. It's keeping the um, ah. seas open. That's number one. And number two, in history, there's very few cases of a country going to war when all of its soldiers are only children. Mm. We forget that something else altogether. Uh, keep in mind that since, you know, uh, China's number one child policy, that means that almost all the soldiers in the Chinese army are only children.
1: Now, when you say children, what age would that include?
3: Well, 22, 23, 19, you know, whatever the age, you know, however yeah. you want to look at it, but they're only sons, or are only daughters. In other words, think about it in a different sort of way. In some armies, only, only, only children are don't even have to go to fight mm-hmm. because they don't want the disaster, potential disaster to occur to a family, obviously, if the only child is killed. But here, the whole army is only children.
1: And on, to compound that whole thing, of course, is that, again, reports, we talked about this last week, that China is very weak right now financially in terms of its housing crisis.
3: In the housing crisis, the whole economy has slowed down considerably. As a matter of fact, one of the reasons I understand oil prices have dropped today again because the ch- demand the Chinese demand for oil is down again and so the Chinese economy is, really does seem to be in trouble at this point um, you know it again we've discussed this before we we create these boogeyman. You know, it was Japan 20 years ago and now it was China who's going to take over the world and it's not happening so quickly each one has their own set of problems and own set of difficulties and um, you know the only issue is you know Taiwan of course Is the main manufacturer of uh, semiconductors, Um, and that's of course an important source. The top top semiconductors in the world are being produced in Taiwan, although some of the companies are now, TMC particularly, is planning to open a large plant in the United States, which will be good in terms of multiple sourcing, which will be a very good thing at this point.
1: So, Mark, right. I, the, uh, the, the stated purpose of the trip is to, vis- to visit Singapore, Malaysia, South Korea, and Japan. Our delegation will hold high-level meetings to discuss how we can further advance our shared interests and values, including peace and security, economic growth and trade, and the COVID-19 pandemic, and the cr- climate crisis, human rights, and domestic governance. I mean, uh, what, can po- what good can possibly come out of this trip? I just don't understand how this makes a difference.
3: Which is stopping in Taiwan? You're referring to. And the I'm talking together.
1: about the entire trip.
3: Well, the entire trip is very, very typical. This is not something new. Congressional delegations do this all the time in terms of meeting. You know, it's one of the keys in uh, diplomatic relations in the United States is that the relationships are not only from the executive branch but also from the legislative branch. I right. mean, if you want to look look historically, you know, both Republicans and Democrats, and sometimes they. Sometimes they join, sometimes they're separate, but over the years, a tremendous amount of traveling takes place by 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 Congress people uh, in different to different countries, etc. Um, it also deepens relationships between uh, the governments, not like I said on the parliamentary level or the uh, not only on the executive level. So this is very this is very typical and not unusual at all. In terms of Taiwan, once again, I think it's a question of saying. The Chinese are not going to di- are not going to dictate what the Speaker of the United States House of Representatives is going to do or not do.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so interesting. Totally. You you brought up this uh, semiconductor. Uh, the president has uh, now had sent to his desk the bill that's been passed by the Senate and the House of Representatives for this uh, two hundred and eighty billion dollar bill. We usually confine our comments and discussions to what's happening internationally, but any thoughts about that?
3: Yeah, no, I don't know all the details, and I'm sure that some of that money is going to get wasted like any sort of program like this. Yeah. Uh, but there is – but, you know, let's let's put waste aside and assume some percentage is going to be wasted. That's a, a given. There is a need um, to convince American companies to make sure that, that more R&D is done in the United States, and most importantly – production of semiconductors.
1: Yeah,
3: The world, you know, we, we're too dependent on importing of, of semiconductors. The top semiconductor company in the world, which is SMC, which makes all the chips for Apple, for instance, uh, they're the ones who can make the highest, uh, the highest quality chips in the world. And so it's important that more of it takes place in the United States. Now, one of the big problems, you know, there's a balance, right? We talk about globalization and we talk about the fact that you know the um that that governments should not get involved and the market should determine where comp- where production is made and everything else like that and then we wake up to covid and suddenly we find ourselves dependent on chinese pharmaceutical products and chinese for this and chinese for that because the low cost <coughs> production location is china yeah. or in this is, in the case in this is taiwan so the question and it's a very difficult economic question right in other words when the national interests become high enough, how much does the government interfere in in the in, in private business in order to create incentives for the national interests to be met?
1: Here's the, what I don't understand, Mark, is that uh, we have a, a, a dire need here in the United States to have semiconductors produced here in, in the United States of America. I mean, that's... Find a need and fill it. That's usually the whole uh, uh, the mantra of the uh, uh, free free economy. And yet uh, now we're trying to in- induce people or, or companies to produce semiconductors. There, if there seems to me to be enough incentive, without the uh, no, this not, money. No,
3: but that's not. It's not the case though, because the reality is, first of all, all of all over the world, company countries give incentives to companies to build factories. Let's start with that. It's a, it's a fact. Whether it's in Ireland, whether it's in singapore whether it's in israel whether it's in all these different places in the world in mexico all companies countries all over the world create incentives tax incentives loans investment incentives, all sorts of different reasons why um, why they should produce in the particular country second of all um, some countries have lower cost of labor right yeah so it's less expensive to produce whatever it might be somewhere else so the problem becomes what look What's happened is, if we look at the the, without government involvement over these last thirty or forty years, what's ended up happening is most of semiconductor production is taking place overseas. Period. That's the invisible hand of the marketplace. Right. So, so one, one can argue that's the best, right, in terms of pure economics. It's better for the invisible hand of the marketplace to determine where companies build factories. Right. However, if we say on the other hand, it's in the national security interest of the United States have more of these factories in the United States, then it requires some sort of action. I mean, we can argue, you know, is this the best way? Should it be more taxed? You know, what are the best incentives? I, I wouldn't even want to get into that because I don't even have the answer to that question.
1: Yeah, Well, I, I agree with the whole notion of incentives, tax incentives, and so forth. But uh, Senator Rick Scott, a uh, senator from Florida, says the bill lacks safeguards and would allow corporations to use American tax dollars to build factories in communist China to expand the share of Chinese uh, semiconductor I, I listen,
3: market? I, I don't know. I, listen, I, I wouldn't know the answer to that question. I didn't read the bill. I mean, Rick Scott is not exactly a nonpartisan, independent observer. So I don't know. I, I don't want to argue with him, but I also wouldn't rely on him. You, know, you know, I don't know, the Congressional Budget Office or somebody else like that who's nonpartisan, if they give an opinion, I'd be willing to listen. But I, I think the need is there whether this is the best bill on Possible? Yeah. I don't have the answer to that question. Well,
1: fair enough. Fair enough. So let's let's move to uh, what's happening in Ukraine.
3: Okay, so right now, um obviously in Donbass, um the Ukrainians have fought the Russians to a halt. Um and at this point they've begun some sort of offensive in an attempt to retake Kherson, which is the the largest city that the Russians captured early in the conflict. Um the Russians are getting desperate now in terms of troops. They're sending all sorts of troops without training because they've lost too much of their their troops to date. Um, again, I'm still an optimist. I think we're going to suddenly see the, the the tide of this war change radically um, as a result of a the fact that the Ukrainians have been getting more and more arms from from the West and are beginning to integrate them into the fight, and b the Russians are running out of troops and running out of arms fight this battle i mean the russians have been you know have been fighting a terror campaign it's the only way you can describe it i mean they've violated every rule of the law excuse me, rule of war that exists to attempt to uh suppress the ukrainians i mean they're they are responsible for so many war crimes yeah um it's really hard to believe it that a, that a country that was sits on the security council is considered you know a serious player in the world and everything else has committed so many war crimes during this war and they've not succeeded
1: so interesting um, i mean we, uh, part of the visuals you know you think about war-torn uh ukraine and how miserable it must be well by the way one of the interesting things is apparently ships are actually leaving the ukraine with grain which i think is the- right
3: today the first one left uh, from from the port of odessa that was an agreement that was reached between the, the turks and the russians and Ukrainians to allow this to happen because um, the impact on the world food market has been tremendous. In other words, Ukraine is one of the major exporters of of wheat in the world. And so um, the cost in Africa and those places of of food has gone way up, and of course that's a terrible thing because these are the countries that can least
1: afford to pay for for grains. Didn't realize Uh, that uh, Ukraine is responsible for I think something like a quarter or a third of all the uh, Grain uh, that's uh, uh, developed or, or produced in the world, so it's, a, it's no it was
3: exported. It, it, it's, it's a misnomer; people mis, un, misunderstand that. It's not all. It's not a third of all the grain produced, because a lot of countries like India produce a tremendous amount, but it's used domestically. But one third of the exported grain
1: ah, okay.
3: Ukraine does produce, which is a big number. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, but um, you know, I mean, the United States is a humongous producer of wheat, obviously, and. We'll start seeing the American, um, you know, the United States farmers started producing more wheat as a result of this war, but as we know, things take time, obviously, to come to market.
1: Definitely. So uh, let's move to Iraq. Uh...
3: So Iraq, an interesting story that's going on at the moment. Iraq has not really been able to come to a government. There was an election. Um, the um, supporters of the Shiite cleric uh, won the majority of the vote, but was not able to form a government. And the temporary government is, it, you know, it's, it's an it's interesting world because the Shiite cleric um, is anti-Iranian. Hmm. So even though he's a Shiite, he's against the Iranians and against the Iranian domination. The Iranian, the government that was formed, um, has a tremendous amount of influence by the Iranians, and they've been, produced, they've been uh, demonstrating every night against this new government because they, want to, they don't want Iranian influence on Iraq.
1: So isn't uh, Iran uh, mainly Shiite?
3: Yes, it is, but doesn't mean necessarily, you know, it's like saying all Christians have the same political views, right?
1: It's true. <laughs>
3: so, you know, it's, it's, it's just, you know, we, we make those mistakes. We make these assumptions that all Shiites agree on everything, or all Sunnis agree, or all Jews, or all Christians, or all, you know, whatever it is. But it's not true. Yeah, Shiites are national. They're, they're Iraqi Shiites who are nationalistic Iraqis, and do not like the Iranians. Remember, Iran and Iraq fought a war that killed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people. Um, so there is not a great deal of love that lost there, and despite the fact that both Shiites, they don't see eye to eye, to say the
1: least. Well, apparently not. But you know, usually you think about uh, this part of the world where the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Uh, it's I guess that uh, that rule of thumb doesn't apply in this circumstance.
3: No, because there are no you know who's who's the enemy here in this case particularly. Yeah. So the United States, or the United States is really not a player anymore in Iraq. I mean, we have a big embassy and we give financial support, but we're not a big player. And no one, no one's against the Americans right now in Iraq. Maybe a little bit the Iranians, obviously, um, because of the confrontation we ongoing confrontation we have with Iran. But um, no, it's just them. Um, Iraqi nationalism, you know, we, we we tend to forget the fact that, you know, there's even some of these countries that, that are relatively, uh, are not historically been around for a long time. Has developed, they've developed a clear set of nationalism. And in this case, Iraq, don't forget, Iraq and Iran. Iran is ancient Persia, and Iraq is ancient Babylonia. Yeah, And so the history is long, and the Babylonians and the Persians fought over hundreds and hundreds of years, so these things don't go away.
1: So how is it? a just final question, Mark, and how is the world alignment in terms of power, how is it lining up at this point? Do you see uh, Russia now, I think perhaps, aligning more with China? Uh, you, I, it,
3: but there's more in alignment with China. The Russians have announced their new naval policy and they look at the United States as its number one enemy in the world right now is the United States. Um, obviously, Europe, and NATO have have come together like they've never done before, and so has the Anglo-Saxon world, New Zealand, Australia. Uh, most of the Asian countries also uh, have lined up in support of the United States, the same countries that are, support the United States vis-a-vis China. Africa is a little more problematic. The Russians have managed to maintain good relations with most of Africa, and India has also been playing a sort of role in the middle without really coming out on one side or the other. Um, But um, generally speaking, you don't really want to be the Russians today in today's world in terms of diplomatic relations with countries and countries that are supporting you. I mean, this has been a total disaster for the Russians. Like, you know, I guess they they thought they would win quickly and then they would enhance their power because everyone would be afraid of them. But the opposite has taken place. The fact that they didn't win quickly has eroded their power because who's afraid of the Russians at the moment?
1: right well uh, so uh, you're in uh, we forgot to mention that you're in uh, tel aviv right now and have been for many months uh so uh, how about things in israel how are things uh, going in terms of uh, international diplomacy and uh, problems with the uh, uh with the palestinians
3: well the palestinians have been relatively quiet at this point and in terms of international diplomacy the, the you know the abraham accords have certainly improved Israel's standing in terms of the Arab world and relations in the Arab world. Israel is once again in the midst of another election campaign. It's fifth in the last uh, four years. provides a good gig for covering elections, to say the least. Mm -hmm. Um, But the Israeli elections really come down to, once again, the question will uh, Benjamin Netanyahu return again because he was pushed out of power last time or not. He's in the middle of a trial right now that's been going on for many months and will go on for many, many months more for corruption, but that has not stopped him from running uh, for election once again. Um, So, uh, generally speaking, like most of the world, Israel is also sort of sitting on the edge. Is there about to be a worldwide recession or not? And No one seems to know that question. It's a very, um, very interesting time in the fact that no one really knows whether the world's about to go into a recession, an inflationary spiral. All these things have been very, very uh, contradictory in the last couple of months, to say the least.
1: Indeed. So uh, and, you know, it's, if Net- Netanyahu comes back into power, does that uh, stop the uh, trial from continuing, or what's the status? No, he'd
3: like to try to stop it. That's part of the issue. Yeah. He wants to try to stop it. There's no legal method for him to stop it just because he comes back into power. Um, but he theoretically could take you know, extra legal, t- legal actions. Um, it's one of the big issues. Um, he, start, you know, the trials actually began. He was still prime minister when the when the trial actually began. So, yeah. Israeli trials last for a long, long time. It's, you don't want to you don't want to know the sad details of the Israeli <laughs> legal system, which really is pretty messed up in the, in
1: the terms of that. All right. Mark Schulman again, the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. I do encourage you to take a look at the website and share it with uh, with uh, members of your family. HistoryCentral.com. Mark, I genuinely appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Have a great us. week, everybody. You as well. Thank you. All right. Coming up, we're going to visit with Ambassador Francis Rooney, the former ambassador to the uh, Holy See. We're going to do that and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
0: Hardin Show, here on the Bob Hartman Broadcasting Network. Bob
1: Hartman. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Gulf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York style theater at its very best. A new arts uh, art festival starting soon, so you can find out more and get tickets. Just visit the website gulfshoreplayhouse.com. Shore Playhouse. Org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Jim McTagg. Right now we have with us uh, Ambassador Francis Rooney, former ambassador to the uh, Holy See, and also our former U.S. Congressman here in District 19. Ambassador, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me on, Bob.
1: My pleasure. So uh, before we talk about the Holy See, uh, and that was a—you wrote a column which I found very interesting, Pope Francis and Putin's War Against Ukraine— Uh, You served for four years in uh, in the United States Congress, representing uh, Florida, representing our district here in uh, the Paradise Coast. What I find interesting is you decided to serve for four years. You had a couple of objectives you wanted to accomplish. You accomplished them, and you left. I mean, uh, any comments about that?
2: Well, yeah. I I never wanted to become a politician particularly, and certainly not at this late stage in my career. But I did want to get that money for the Everglades which nobody had done since 2000, the yep. 22, 28, it had been 19 years at that time. And um, also wanted to get that offshore drilling ban extended that everybody and certainly most people in Florida want done. And, you know, the one that uh, Jeb and Mel Martinez got done was about to expire. It would have expired by now if we if I hadn't gotten Trump to uh, extend it for 10 years yeah. by executive order. And um, so after done those things. I thought, well, okay, I did what I...
4: To
1: do. It's kind of interesting. I just say that in juxtaposition to most people that just want to get elected, they want now. Once they get there, they say, "Now, what do I want to do?" <laughs> Don't have a game well, plan.
2: Unfortunately, unlike the founders, for most people in elected office, it's the best thing that ever happened to them. Right, it's about the job and the opportunity, not the service, and that's really unfortunate. You know, I introduced a term limit bill that didn't require a constitutional amendment. All the ones that are out there that people are co-sponsors of. Never will happen because they require a constitutional amendment. I introduced the one that said, okay, after 12 years, your salary stops. And I mean, a lot of people were really upset at that <laughs> because they said, wow, maybe, maybe what, if, what if
4: that happened? <laughs> yeah, no, it'd be
1: good. I think that's a great idea, really. And then we'll certainly find out if they're dedicated to service as opposed to a career position. Yeah. I'm sorry, I didn't even know that. That's so interesting, uh, Ambassador Rooney. So uh, you, uh, you've you taken a position with regard to uh, Pope Francis and the war against Ukraine. Maybe you could tell us about it.
2: Yeah, Pope Francis has said some very strange things that I think are inconsistent with the traditional diplomatic
4: engagement
2: of the Holy See, and certainly inconsistent with what I think the Western world thinks of Russia right now. He basically buys into this mantra that by expanding NATO, we're culpable to some degree for what Putin's doing. I just think that's ridiculous. You know, NATO is set up to embrace and nurture Western democracies and protect them. And so we have some new ones. So there's nothing wrong with NATO taking them in. Yeah. Some of our most staunch members of NATO, like Poland, Romania, uh, Slovakia, etc., Czech Republic, are the new members that, that uh, theoretically threaten Putin. I don't know why the Pope did that.
1: Well, so, so I'd be interested in your comments about the, the, the Pope and his stance on so many things since he's been in, in his position as Pope. Uh, how would you assess him in terms of the role of the Pope?
2: Well, I think he's vastly different than his two predecessors who were engaged uh, in both the doctrines of the Church and in um, the diplomatic engagement, the role of the Church in the world, uh, as standing up for uh, against corruption human rights and, and, and human dignity in the world, and, and basically standing up for democracy. And um, this guy seems to be more concerned about rich versus poor, that historical Latin American narrative of liberation theology, and um, just this business about going to Canada and putting on a headdress and with the Indians and stuff. I just, I don't, I think that's distracting from the constructive role the church can play in influencing better behaviors from bad governments around the world.
1: You know, it just seems so ironic to me that he came from a very poor and corrupt country uh, before he was uh, uh, elected pope, and uh, deeply immersed in socialism, and then somehow, way, he seems to emerge as a globalist and a socialist.
2: Yeah, he's applied what he learned in Argentina on the bigger stage, and I don't think it's particularly constructive, and I don't think it's helped the papacy. I mean, I don't think for the pope to say— Well, you know, there's all these different factors that we need to take into account when we evaluate Putin's uh, destructive, aggressive behavior. I don't think that does wholly see any good at all. The only factors we need to take into account about Putin's behavior is how to stop him from killing off everybody in the Ukraine.
1: Yeah, so what would be the appropriate uh, message from the Pope with regard to Ukraine?
2: It would be that this heinous dictator needs to be stopped that there's no rational basis for him attacking, uh, attacking a sovereign state, that his his uh, comments that it's basically part of Russia are hogwash. It's not. It's an independent state. It's trying to become a democracy, albeit too corrupt. It's one of the most corrupt states in, in, in Europe, but neither here nor there. That's an evolutionary issue. But the Pope ought to be forceful on that. I mean, Pope Benedict, he was plenty forceful about Iran, about the corruption in the Congo, Kabila's government, um things
1: like that when i was ambassador you know ambassador rooney I, I i look at the uh i get concerned when i see everybody putting a, a black hat on uh on uh, putin and a white hat on zelensky and uh you know you know it's okay to have two people with black hats now the, the ukraine is a very corrupt country and uh as best as I can tell, he was uh, the president was put in place because he was a, a star at a television show and financed primarily by one of the oligarchs in Ukraine. I just have some real questions about where all this money is going that we're sending over there.
2: Well, the, the Ukraine is considered one of the most corrupt countries in the world, and before this thing broke out, we were working very hard to try to get the, the, to get their border shored up, where it's just nothing but a. Walmart for arms. It's kind of like Venezuela versus Colombia. And um, uh, now that's all kind of put under the table because we're trying to you know help defend Zelensky. And they've got a lot of work to do there, but it still doesn't militate against the uh, need to resist Russia's aggression.
1: I certainly agree with that. I yeah, it, And I also, it's not a big deal, but I mean, he's on the cover of Vogue magazine. His wife comes over here for a visit. The optics of that, it's just a pretty... Uh well it just doesn't sit well with me. I don't know what your thoughts.
2: Yeah, I don't I think they should stay the business as usual. And I'm not sure Congress should have a wife address Congress. I mean, come on. Um, he should have done it by Zoom like he's been doing it with Macron and other people.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So again, Francis Rooney, our former ambassador to the Holy See, also our congressman from two thousand uh, 17, no, 2017 to 21, wasn't it, Ambassador? Mm-hmm. Okay. So yeah. well, I really appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: Bob, thanks for having me
1: on. Always a pleasure, Ambassador. Uh, such an interesting guy. Okay, coming up, we're going to be visiting with uh, Jim McTague. Uh He's former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief and author of several books. Uh, his latest is uh, No Problem. That and more right here on The Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
0: Come back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's
1: your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability. I proudly serve on their board. Among other things, they create policies and programs to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. It's a moral imperative, and you can find out more by visiting the website vfga.com. Dot org. We have with us Jim McTagg, former Barron's Washington Bureau chief and also, also author of several novels. His latest is No Problem, really interesting uh, murder mystery located right down in uh, Washington, D.C. Jim, thank you so much for joining us here on the show.
4: It's a pleasure, Bob. I'm, I'm mulling uh, midterm elections and, and stock markets because, you know, we've had a wild stock market this year, and I think... Um, uh, year over year, or even from uh, January first, uh, even with uh, the past uh, few weeks of positive market moves, we're still down about twelve percent for the year. And I think everybody has uh, whiplash. Yeah, and I, I think the tendency would, be, you know, to be to develop a bunker mentality. But um, I've been doing. You know I've been through so many midterm elections over the years i I covered politics for thirty seven years and mathematically uh we should we should go all in on October first and, and and at least ride the market through next April
1: hmm well that's interesting because there's a lot of structural things that are creating problems some discussion about stagflation of course so that means uh high inflation and uh uh, low, low uh, productivity, you know, being in a recession. So, uh, I mean, I think that's a real possibility right now. What are your thoughts?
4: Well, yeah, that's the, uh, you know, 87% of the time, the market ha- has a, a great fourth quarter in a midterm election year. And, and like 90% of the time, the market goes up between uh, October before the election And April afterwards now you you know the uh, the old caveat about past performance doesn't uh, project what's going to happen in the future right it's true this time around because the economy is so complex and the Fed has already raised interest rates four times uh, and yet employment remains strong so so I think the, the momentum in the economy and the inflationary pressures in the economy uh haven't really abated yet and that could happen after the election so 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 suddenly after the election which is usually counterintuitive you know we're going to we might see uh layoffs rising unemployment and that could negatively impact the stock market mm-hmm. now now the, the uh, market uh, gurus tell us that uh, the winners of a midterm election do not affect market performance that it's based entirely on the performance of the economy i don't buy that especially this time around when it looks like a republican wave you know i think uh i think the investment public associates associates republicans with reduced red tape lower taxes a pro business environment So I think that that will add some momentum to the um, stock market prior to the election. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, so what we could have is a a run up. I call it a melt up before the election with the risk of a uh, disappointment post-election and and a real correction, you know, when the Fed's moves begin to uh, bite into the economy.
1: So what's so interesting to me, Jim, is the fact that we have uh, 3.6% unemployment, which is fantastic on one hand, and yet we have fewer people working. There's been millions who have seemingly dropped out of the workforce, and I wonder how the heck they're they're, they're making money. So can you explain that?
4: Well, I think a lot of it is uh, baby boomers who have retired, and I think it's a, a, a tribute to the 401k. I think a lot of us— uh, had adequate savings for retirement. And so that's a factor. Uh, The other thing is uh, what I call the slacker economy. I think there are a lot of uh, younger people who are unemployable. They can't pass a uh, simple urine test. They can't pass an algebra test. And, And so a lot of these jobs go begging. And the third thing is that immigration, both parties are guilty for uh, failing to reform immigration to allow qualified, very intelligent workers from overseas to come and fill the jobs that we need. So, you know, in the past, uh, we were responsible for a brain drain from the rest of the world to the United States, which was a good thing. Yeah. And we no longer have that advantage. So uh, we really have to correct immigration because uh, because of the slacker economy, the number of people who are on drugs, uh, who, who just uh, lack ambition. We don't have an adequate workforce. And the reason employment remains strong, even in the face of the Fed rate hikes, hikes is a lot of businesses, and, and you know this because you know a lot of small businessmen, they see an opportunity to make more money if they can deliver their products and services because the demand is there, but they can't find the employees to make that possible. Yeah, isn't so that that's right? why job demand remains strong. We have so much unrealized productivity in this economy. And again, it's because of uh, immigration. I think primarily immigration is so fouled up. And, and, and the drug problem, We can't. it's just uh, way beyond our comprehension how
1: how that permeates the economy yeah just a comment though i do recall if i'm not mistaken that we still have in our immigration laws unfortunate consequence of having somebody who gets a phd at mit let's say in engineering or whatever it might be and uh, the rules say that they have to leave the country after they get their degree we want that person to stay don't we uh
4: we do because um you know not, not only are they smart and can contribute but i mean uh, you know, it's it's our intellectual property. Yeah, our, you know, we've created this PhD, so so it's the the person is an asset, a very valuable asset, and so it's ridiculous to lose that asset.
1: So, uh, Jim, uh, you'd referenced between October and the election that you expect a strong market. A lot of time between now and October, what's going to happen then?
4: Uh, we're going to have more volatility. You know, we're going to have Ups and downs. It's going to be a trader's market, uh, but it's. Uh, I, I mean, it, it happens all the time. I was looking at the, the Trump uh, midterm. one uh, was that? That was back uh, in 2018. Mm-hmm. He had a really bad market running up to uh, the election, I and mean, even that October, was that October the market performed very badly, and, and yet. In the final quarter, I mean, when you took all the numbers together, it was very positive, and for the and through the following April, the market was very very strong. So, um, the uh, even if the beginning of October is volatile, the odds favor being invested. And you now, let's face it: uh, when you invest in stocks. There is an element of betting, so you you have to take some
1: risk. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Jim. Before I let you go, you know, we've got this uh, vote coming up. Of, uh, unfortunately, Mansion caved. He's made a deal with Schumer, and he's willing to support this mini uh, stimulus package that uh, that's being proposed. Uh, we haven't heard from uh, Kirsten Sinema yet, she, a Senator from uh, I think it's Nevada or. Los, uh,
4: Arizona. Arizona,
1: yeah. What What's going to happen, do you think?
4: Well, you know, uh, the Democratic Party, the old uh, saw is it's like trying to hurt cats. It's That's not cinema. I mean, remember that uh, Ernie Sanders of Vermont personally attacked Joe Manchin when, when Manchin refused to make a deal. He went into West Virginia and tried to, uh, uh, and he bad-mouthed uh, Joe Manchin. That didn't West work
1: Virginia. out so well.
4: <laughs> yeah, so... So, uh, And there are other Democrats who have um, personal tax agendas. Uh, The Wall Street Journal has a story today that that there are Democrats who want the deduction for uh, state taxes put back into the code and that they may not go along. So uh, we have a vote in the Senate this week on this uh, so-called Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. Um, I would be shocked if anything is done this week. Um, I would, and I really do not expect this bill to pass at all. I think the Democrats are going to sabotage their own legislation because of divisions within the party.
1: From your lips to God's ear, Jim McTagg, again, uh, former Barron's Washington bureau chief, but author of some great uh, novels. Uh, Follow the Leader, its sequel is Shake the Money Tree, and its sequel, which just came out recently, I've read them all, is No Problem uh, by Jim McTagg. M-C, capital T-A-G-U-E. Jim, always appreciate your commentary here in the show. Thank you so much for joining us.
4: Oh, it's a pleasure, Bob.
1: Thank you so much. Well, that's a wrap here in today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. We've got great guests for tomorrow's show. Uh, always appreciate your comments on the show. You can send me an email at bobharden at hotmail.com. bobharden at hotmail.com. Also, uh, patronize our advertisers. Uh, tell your friends about the show. That, uh, really, uh, they make the show possible. And uh, give them some love.